Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, welcome to Real Vision Crypto. Enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome once again to Real Vision and the Defiance Weekly Clash of the Titans. We pitch the might of macro with the deviousness of DeFi degeneracy. In the red corner, weighing in with wit, wisdom, and wherewithal, it's the Clark Kent of finance, Ash Bennington. His opponent's in the blue corner, scouring the universe in hopes of any kind of story that isn't about the board apes. Well, well, it's me, Ash. We do have a story to kick off that isn't about the board apes. Do you want to take us through like the big story in the world of financial markets right now, the FOMC? Yeah, so we're filming this here uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday. So we don't know the results of this uh, Fed hike uh, rate talk sort of extravaganza that we've been hearing now for the last few weeks. Uh, Let let me give you the basics. Let me give you the setup. Let me give you the background. Uh, So here's what we do know for a fact. Uh, Inflation right now is running at a 40-year high. Uh, We're running at an eight handle. That means that we're seeing 8% annualized inflation based on CPI and some of the other data. Uh, The Fed expanded the money supply 40% during the COVID crisis. We've got a balance sheet now that's around $9 trillion. Uh, The new news out this morning, actually, is that Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan, of course, was out this morning saying the Fed, basically, they're late to the party. Uh, They should have hiked earlier. Uh, So the bacon on this is that uh, the consensus is for 50 basis points uh, today uh, at the meeting around 2 p.m., But, you know, the reality is there's always uncertainty in this. You never know if the Fed is going to hike more or less for whatever reason. I think that the the consensus is probably toward more right now. Um, But it is uh, it is it is kind of a precarious time in macro. It's a choppy time in macro. If you look at uh, year to date here in U.S. equity markets, uh, Nasdaq 100, Nasdaq Composite, both off 20 percent on a year to date basis. That's, uh, you know, obviously January uh, to May. Not a pretty time. And we're seeing that in the crypto markets as well. You see that same chop when you look at the chart uh, of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, And that's basically where we are during this kind of like weird uh, pivot point. I'll add one other point. Uh, A legendary investor, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, out, I think, yesterday with some really grim comments uh, about these markets, basically saying, hey, you don't want to own bonds. You don't want to own stock. It's an ugly, ugly time. Now, here's an interesting sort of thought uh, or thought experiment, maybe. Uh, There's this dichotomy out there where you see folks in the crypto space, particularly Bitcoiners, though not exclusively Bitcoiners and not all Bitcoiners have made this argument, saying that when there is chop in traditional markets, when we see the problems uh, that we've uh, seen with central banks, we've seen with uh, expanding money supplies, we've seen with inflation, crypto assets should rally. Obviously, that has not happened yet uh, to date. So it is this, this kind of paradox. I think the flip side of that argument is also uh, one that people need to understand, which is when you see a tightening of financial conditions, meaning you see the availability of credit, the ability of investors to get easy access to credit, to buy assets, particularly in this case, as we refer to digital assets, you may see uh, declines in price. That's basically the setup 
Uh, Paul Tudor Jones described it as the, the cross-hatching pattern you see in the ocean when waves collide, when you see the squares and they tell you not to go in the water because of the riptides. It's an interesting time. It seems to be something of a kind of an inflection point. We've got to wait to see what the data is saying. We'll wait to see how markets react, Robin. Well, there's that great maxim, isn't it? Times of uncertainty are actually times of great opportunity if you know how to read them. And Paul Tudor Jones famously was one of the early kind of big voices to come out in favor of Bitcoin as this hedge against inflation. Michael Saylor followed suit. And so those guys are making a big bet on it. So I guess it's in his interest to tout that narrative to a degree. But it is interesting, as you say, that, you know, if Bitcoin is to take on this mantle as being this great kind of hedge against inflation, that it should see some interest. But it is so risky and so difficult to acquire at scale that yeah. how can it take on that mantle? What's interesting is that the, the cost of transacting on Bitcoin is pretty much at an all-time low. Did you know that? I it's did. Basically, yeah, and, and nobody's using it. So they're, they're just hodling it, which is, which is the, the wonderful, wonderful paradox about Bitcoin that <clears throat> as a, an actor in financial activity, it sucks. You don't want to use it. You just want it to sit there and do nothing. Right. But, you, you know... know I was going to say, economists would think about this and say that you, you basically have uh, the medium of exchange function and the store of value function uh, of a currency acting sort of in opposition to each other. Uh, there's something called Gresham's Law, uh, which states uh, that effectively bad money chases good money out of the system in terms of transactions because people want to retain hard assets uh, while spending assets that are going to decline. Uh, and so it's interesting talking about the paradox, uh, as you mentioned, Robin, it's sort of these nested paradoxes in Bitcoin. Bitcoin uh, was originally sort of conceived, if you read the white paper, as a, as a transactional uh, currency. Uh, and obviously what we're seeing is more of the store of value function. Now, obviously, uh, the Lightning Network is a topic of a great deal of excitement. The level two that's going to, uh, in the view of many in the Bitcoin space, supplant Bitcoin for the level two transactions for, uh, in other words, smaller value transactions, the medium of exchange function. But, you know, again, incredibly, incredibly early. Look, we do have to say this, though. While we experience all of these challenges uh, in the DeFi, NFT, Web3 uh, ecosystem, uh, what's Bitcoin been doing? Uh, in, in addition to uh, not uh, having uh, high transaction fees, it's basically been performing precisely as advertised. Bitcoiners will tell you this. Hey, well, you guys are out there doing all this crazy stuff on the edge. Bitcoin just keeps functioning as it always has. Not a maximalist argument, but the reality is that's just a fact. Bitcoin has not experienced some of the challenges that we're, I suspect we're about to talk about uh, on Solana and Ethereum. Well, it, it may not have done, but it has done in the past. And it, it, it did clog up to a fair degree. I, I remember a Bitcoin documentary. Roger Ver's got his phone out and he's just, you know, zapping Bitcoin to people willy nilly as if it's nothing. And it's just pennies. And like, it seems so easy and so wonderful by then. But it, at, at times in the past few years, it, it was definitely not that. And that does indeed segue us nicely to yeah. ETH. Well, Bitcoin is like, you could imagine it being like this beautiful abandoned beach, right? And you go up on your Instagram, you live stream from this amazing abandoned beach, and you talk about just how incredible it is because there's no one there and you're the only one there. And at the same time, you, you're you streaming your uh, your GPS coordinates and suddenly people show up on the beach. And it's this challenge of uh, being a victim of their own success. And this is something that we saw uh, in Bitcoin historically. Now we're seeing it in Ethereum. We could talk a little bit about Solana. Uh, but that's the challenge is how do you continue to get these networks to function at scale uh, in a way that's economical uh, and that can uh, process the throughput that, you know, 
gets demanded when these networks become victims of their own success. And and it's timely that we should talk about that because over the weekend, the entire collective crypto space held its breath in anticipation of the Yuga Labs other side mint drop. And this was unprecedented. The statistics on this are... Well, they're, they're pretty mind-blowing. I, I'm calling up the Watch the Burn website, though, which is fascinating. You can see a spike here for just how much ETH was actually consumed during this mint. So there are 100,000 of these NFTs on, uh, on offer, and like 75,000 of them could be, um, sorry, 65,000 of them could be picked up during the mint. But the amount of ETH burned on that single day, 71,000 ETH. And I think for the Mint itself, they were responsible for around $150 million worth of ETH just being thrown in the toilet, right. which, is, which, is, which is nuts. So the net issuance on that day was around minus 58,000 ETH. So normally the, the net issuance is mi- mildly positive, so there's more ETH being issued than burned. Occasionally right. it dips below, but it's generally mostly positive. This was just the most massively negative day there's ever been. And yeah. even so, the rewards remain consistent at 13,400 ETH per day. For the miners so the miners didn't see any of it either so this was just a huge huge kind of anomaly blip i mean what was also interesting the entire network just shut down i actually minted and i had to pay three ethan gas to get my mint through that's around you know it was around just under kind of nine thousand dollars think about that just to get my transaction through nine thousand dollars i mean what 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 is that <laughs> what am i doing ash I mean, that's uh, the most beautiful beach in the world getting clogged with people. It is. And it, it, it's not. It, and the, the, the big story here is that the Yuga Labs changed the nature of the mint. They were going to do a Dutch auction and then they changed it to a flat rate of 305 ape. And they said this because they said Dutch auctions were bullshit and they, they wanted to mitigate gas wars. They even put a beautiful little mirror article out saying in three different paragraphs, we want to mitigate gas wars. We want to soften the blow of gas wars. What resulted was the biggest gas war there has ever been. And I mean, they must have known. This is A16Z have, have, have invested in these guys. You model this stuff out, you game it out. And it then led to them admitting in an email chain that perhaps... ApeCoin shouldn't really belong on Ethereum, that maybe ApeCoin needs its own chain. Do you think that's just kind of theatrics or, or did they really mess it up? I mean, what's your take on that? Well, I, I don't know if it's theatrics. I mean, it's not uh, sort of a far-fetched thesis um, that board uh, Ape Yavkub like Yuga Labs would want uh, to have uh, apes on their own chain. You would think that that would give them a, a greater degree of granularity, a greater degree of control. Uh, whether or not we get there and what the uh, tokenomics look like and, and what the structure of this looks like uh, is, I think, very much an open question. Uh, but the one statistic I did not hear you mention was how much Yuga Labs made uh, on this mint. The number I saw was $320 million, uh, over uh, a quarter of a billion, indeed nearly a third of a billion dollars. This is some real money. Uh, so, you know, despite the, the the challenges in the system, Yuga Labs did very well. Well, there's a caveat to that because it was raised in ape. And as we know, you know, yeah. you buy the rumor, sell the news and, and people did sell instantly um, the ape token dropped significantly. So it might have been 320 at the moment of sale, but it did drop right. a fair bit since then. I mean, I think the prognosis for ApeCoin itself is pretty good, I would say. But I think the what, what's interesting here is that they, in public, they said, yeah, 
you know, maybe Ethereum isn't the right chain for a game. They've been promoting this game as being able to bring in a huge number of players. They partnered up with Improbable.io, which is a it's a networking specialist for creating massively multiplayer online gaming systems for allowing people to be social at the same time, tens of thousands of people all together. You know, the, the scope for this is massive. And if you want people to interact with each other, to be trading NFTs actively and vibrantly to create that secondary market, uh, Ethereum is not the chain for that, not that scale. So why, why are they sort of saying that publicly? I, it's just seemed odd because it would have been probably the first question you ask. Axie Infinity, probably the biggest success story of last year in play to earn. Thousands and thousands of transactions, still one of the largest NFT players in the space. They built their own chain, Ronin. It got hacked, yes, but they had to build their own side chain in order to allow people to transact in a kind of more economically fair way. It was a yeah. bit strange, the whole thing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is sort of an interesting space uh, right now. You mentioned this idea of uh, the, the decline in the value of ape uh, offsetting the losses uh, that bored apes uh, that Yuga would have made on this. But what was their cost of goods sold, Robin? How much did this land cost them to produce? Well, that's a very good question. I'm glad you brought it up because the scale of this is on is far greater than pretty much anything we've seen. We, metaverses tend to have quite a large number of pieces of land, but they're not designed yet. Whereas there was an enormous amount of artwork that needed to be made for this. And of course, some of it repeats across different pieces of artwork. But when you scale up from 10,000 to 100,000, that's an order of magnitude, more traits, more pieces of art that need to be created. And it's not like the kind of expansion packs they had over time. This is built from the ground up and it's built using the same art style as the mutants. There's quite a lot of work gone into this. So I'm, yeah, I don't think they just kind of put it together for, for zero cost. There's quite a lot of things that, that are going on here and still plenty of stuff that needs to be revealed in terms of the gameplay, yeah. in terms of what we can actually do. I mean, there's so many talking points to this, but really what the, the main thing is people didn't know what they were buying. They had very little information. They knew they were called Other Deeds and there was a leaked pitch deck which gave people some of the idea about what they were buying, but really they didn't actually know. And effectively what you have done by buying another Deed is become, it's basically a pass to be a beta tester for a game that will be free to play for anybody coming in, but you can be a beta tester by owning one of these other deeds. It's, it's, it's mad. So there's, it's there's mad. so much to talk about here. I, I didn't mean to suggest that their cost of goods was zero, um, but look, the reality is um, any type of software, the margins are enormous when you can sell it at scale, right? That's why SaaS companies have, have made uh, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, gains in market cap. That's why, you know, you see the valuations uh, that we see on, on Google and, and Facebook uh, and, and, uh, and Amazon. The reality is it's incredibly cheap uh, to produce this. I'm also not entirely clear about um, the other side land offering versus uh, the game, you know, how that gets allocated in terms of, 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 of where the costs are matched uh, to what raise uh, and, and, and how that works. But look, the reality is uh, that this is a very profitable business uh, that Yugo Labs is in. Well, here's the, here's the kicker, right? 
royalty on secondary sales. 5%. Yeah. And they've done 63,726,000 in secondary sales already. Yeah. I mean, this thing is going to be beyond profitable. And you've got 100,000 assets, of, all of which have little pieces of them, which can then also be traded. I mean, just, oh my gosh. It's, I, want, it's, I want to point this out because you know we mentioned this in passing, but this is your point is spot on, and it's a really critical thing for people to understand. The ability to actually make money a five percent royalty on a secondary market on, in perpetuity is extraordinary, and it's not something that we've generally seen before in the history of commerce. The ability to basically get a five percent royalty at essentially zero cost in terms of the transaction fees. That puts creators in a very powerful position across the board, uh, not just Yuga Labs, but for the entire ecosystem. Well, it does. And that, I think that was the, the big selling point of, of this entire metaverse. Is it, I think a lot of projects right now that aren't in the kind of top bracket are really struggling. They've had all their secondary sales sucked out of the market. And so they're looking at projections for whatever their runway looks like for the next 12 months to build stuff and promise stuff and keep their community happy, but they've run out of money and they're going to be unable to make new money unless they can pivot. And the pivot makes sense if you see other deeds. So there's an SDK that um, Yuga Labs have developed, which will allow other NFT projects to port into their ecosystem. I don't know what that SDK looks like yet. It's a, it's a really vital piece of the puzzle here because if you have Rama, can you explain what that means for uh, some of our folks who don't uh, follow this space as closely as you do? So an SDK is a software development kit. It's basically, it's a way of making it easy for a developer to come in and, and build on your system. And like any blockchain, layer one will have it. You, it's not exclusive to blockchain by any, by any degree, but it's, it's yeah. a set of tools to allow anyone who wants to build on you to build on you rapidly uh, and with support. What Basically, Bored Apes are a bunch of 2D flat images. And if you want them to be able to run around a universe, they have to be translated into a format which will work in that space. Most PFP projects suffer from that same problem. They weren't built with 3D components already in. Right. So they've, they've created a system that will allow them to translate the mutants and the apes onto the, the other verse or the other side. And they're open sourcing that, allowing other projects to come and use it now there will be a development overhead to that but it also means that if you're a new project and you see that you're going to you know build a mini game on the other side you can do it from the get-go using this sdk uh, i don't know what that sdk looks like at the moment but that's definitely that's a big cherry uh, on the cake because everyone else is having to do it by themselves but if uh, yeah. if they open source it and, and allow any project to come in that means they benefit not only from their own primary and secondary sales but they benefit from everybody else's as well. It's genius. Yeah. It's genius. I mean, Yuga Labs has been uh, a leader uh, in, in all of these kinds of uh, technological innovations. Again, I mean, I feel like I've broken record whenever I say this, but it is incredibly, incredibly early in this space. When we talk about things like uh, SDKs, software development kits, we talk about uh, APIs, application programming interfaces. These are things that have existed in the traditional uh, sort of development space for decades and decades. This stuff is being built up layer by layer right now. Yuga Labs, one of the 
innovators on the forefront of doing this, but it takes time to create these things uh, in ways that are stable and especially in ways that are secure. Uh, obviously, there's an incentive structure in the uh, decentralized world to attempt to uh, exploit these systems because it can be enormously lucrative uh, for the people who do it. Uh, and so, you know, it's like it's like we're building a bridge and we're walking across it at the same time to get to the other side. This is incredibly exciting, but also I think it's fair to point out a perilous moment uh, for the ecosystem, particularly for investors uh, who may be coming in and speculating on this without really understanding the nature of the risks and also potentially the opportunities, we should say. Well, it, it, what, what was particularly interesting, that people coming into this mint were unaware of what a gas war would actually imply. So a lot of people had kind of scrambled together 305 APE in the hopes that that would be significant enough to allow them to participate in the mint, which it was, but they couldn't push a transaction through. So they would find themselves suddenly needing to get an extra two ETH on top, which is not chump change. And suddenly they're excluded from this mint. Um, for yeah. those of us that could afford it, great, we're the privileged few, but a lot of people had honestly put together just enough. And at no point had Yuga said, listen, there's a potential, you know, this is, this is going to be the biggest mint in history and you probably should be aware that this is what's going to happen. You could have modeled it out, but they didn't. And that, that left a lot of people feeling very, very pissed off and a lot of failed transactions. They have actually refunded the ETH for that. But it, it, yeah. it's, that's, that's exactly one of those risks that if you knew, you knew. And if you'd done ICOs in 2017, you would have been very familiar with this. The setup was exactly the same. You could just see it. Limited number of KYCs, limited availability, massive hype, push the gas. It was, it was an obvious thing. ApeCoin has since tumbled. Yeah. But today... It suddenly shut up again. It did a classic pump and dump, all because of one man, Elon Musk, who changed his profile picture on Twitter to a composite of a bunch of apes that he'd actually stolen from, I believe, the uh, the NFT head at Sotheby's. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is classic Elon, right? This is just trolling everyone senseless. What did you make of this one? You know, I'm not really sure. Does you know is is Elon sort of aware that in in the community he wasn't actually grabbing an individual ape. He was taking this sort of composite. Uh, did he know that he needed to credit uh, the Sotheby's author, uh, the Sotheby's content creator for it? Uh, was he just sort of grabbing it off a of Google image search and maybe didn't know? Um, open questions. But I, I wanted to get back to the gas fees. Uh, uh, question for a minute here, because these are substantial, and I wanted to run through some of these numbers. You know, gas fees, Ethereum gas fees now around five hundred bucks, I believe, uh, and and you know, people paid ten thousand uh, dollars to get executed uh, on this mint, uh, and some folks were uh, paying five thousand dollars just to get burned. Now, obviously, as you say, Ugolabs is reimbursing those fees, um, but these are these are really extraordinary numbers, uh, particularly when you see it in relation. Uh, to the price of the underlying asset uh, they're buying at the mint, uh, a very, very high proportion. And, and I think it's fair to say the transaction fees that represent a massive proportion of the underlying assets uh, are just simply not uh, sustainable for an ecosystem to exist at scale. And I'm not talking about bored apes here uh, specifically. I'm talking about the entire NFT space, the Ethereum ecosystem. You know, if you were buying a house for, say, $250,000 and the transaction fee was 150 grand. Uh, that's probably something that doesn't look terribly, uh, um, you know, economically interesting to most people. And and these are issues that ultimately have to get sorted out. We talked a little bit about Solana, seven-hour outage. Solana being touted uh, as one of the L1s as a potential uh, Ethereum 
uh, I don't want to say replacement, but a, an alternative to Ethereum for doing some of these transactions. And yet, you know, we see uh, that ecosystem uh, going out for seven hours, right? Yeah, absolutely. The when the cost of transacting on Ethereum isn't that bad. Like, if on a good day, I can spend like a buck fifty. It depends what you're doing, though. I mean, the, the the problem with this is that anyone who was trying to do anything else on Ethereum at the time couldn't. Right. And, and people were going on to OpenSea and trying to buy these NFTs on the secondary market and having to still spend two ETH on top of the price, which was all over the place anyway. But imagine you had a, um, a position on a lending protocol that was a risk of liquidation and you were trying to top it up and you, you were suddenly in that kind of scenario. Like, what do you do? It, th there's more to Ethereum than just NFTs, and it obviously right. can't handle that kind of load. Right, but you, in some in some senses, that's that's an even more damning statement. There's more Ethereum than NFTs because it suggests uh, that when you do have these peak peak moments, I'm looking at a chart uh, here, and I, I see the May one peak around four hundred and seventy four dollars uh, for gas fees on Ethereum, uh, and it's like the old joke about liquidity, uh, Robin, which is there's always a ton of liquidity except for the moment you need it, uh, and so you know if if transaction fees remain relatively stable except. Uh, for the moment when uh, there's a, a significant uh, mint and everyone attempts to dive into it, you know, that's 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 something that's a challenge. I'm not saying that it's an insurmountable challenge. It's just something that obviously uh, is going to need to get sorted out before we're able to do these things at scale. You know, if, if you think about uh, this ecosystem, you know, for, for you and for me and for people who follow the space and who are super into this, uh, this is a huge story. Uh, but if you, uh, you know, you ask a uh, Folks on the street, some of our friends. Hey, what did you think about the uh, about the uh, land mint? They'll look at you like you have three heads, right? And so, what that means is it's a it's a subset of a subset in terms of the people who are using this now. And yet, you still have these massive spikes uh, in terms uh, in terms of gas fees when there is demand. So that's obviously something that's going to need to get sorted out. It's something that's going to need to get solved. Yes, and yet, Elon has changed his. Twitter profile picture to an ape. He's literally done their marketing for them. You know, this is one of the most followed people in the world. Yeah. And, 90 and, million Twitter and, followers or thereabouts. Yeah. And like, he's just doing all their marketing for them. So they'll know. Um, it's, I, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are so many layers to this. Solana is an interesting one. We should definitely jump on, onto that story because Solana went dark for seven hours. And that for a blockchain is, I mean, it's like being a broadcasting network and they're just being dead air. It's, you, you just don't do it. There is so much financial activity on these major blockchains that it, it, it's just the cardinal sin. And this has happened before with Solana. They, they went dark because a bot started spamming the network. And Solana's architected in a slightly unusual way, and that's designed to make it go fast. It doesn't have a mempool. So most transactions, you submit them to the, to the blockchain, they go into a mempool, and then miners look at those transactions, say, what's the best one for me? And then they get ordered according to which one's the most profitable. And then they get, you know, processed over time until they're all cleared out. And then more ones join the mempool. Solana doesn't have that. They, they have leaders and validators. And it's actually a very, very neat and efficient system designed for massive speed. Solana are not shy about touting themselves as being the Ferrari of blockchains, being able to process tens of thousands up to nay a million transactions per second. But that makes them a subject for attack. And as you said earlier, blockchain is a very adversarial environment. And for those who want to dig further, you can look into MEV and sandwich attacks and what goes on when bots spot your transaction early and then front run you and squeeze out more value from you than you're prepared to give them or you're expecting to give them. This is going on all the time. 
And I remember being at Harmony, which is another high-speed layer one blockchain, when we were under attack and someone took down a shard. They deliberately took it down and you have to scramble to get it up and the community hates you and they think something's wrong. And then you're really sort of determined by how you act in a crisis. This was, again, an NFT minting thing. So there's a, you know, you were talking about SDKs before. This was actually the CLI um, of a NFT minting tool that a bot started attacking and spamming and it just it just completely swamped the network. NFTs again, over and over and over. It's the same story. So Solana just couldn't handle the load. And Solana's supposed to be the one that can handle the load. So, you know, victim of success and teething problems, whatever you want to call it, you know, we are, we, as you say, we are ridiculously early. Um, that's yeah. the truth. Yeah, Robin. So let me talk a little bit more generally to this. The challenge that we see here is that we're seeing this amazing opportunity, this massive shift in the way that venture capital gets done. Uh, historically, uh, you know, we have this Sand Hill Road model, this very sort of structured uh, way of thinking about investment uh, in early stage technology, uh, angel rounds, seed rounds, uh, A rounds, B rounds, like this idea uh, of of this very sort of structured system, and the dis this distinction here uh, is the liquidity. So liquidity was not immediately val available. If you were an investor uh, in in Google, if you were an investor in Amazon and Dropbox and Netflix. Um, you didn't really have an active secondary market uh, to get liquidity. In other words, you couldn't take money out once you'd put it in. So this, the system that we live in right now uh, is one where there's this, this radical liquidity uh, from the moment that a token gets issued. So the upside here uh, is that there's liquidity, and the downside here is that there's liquidity. So you may purchase something, uh, you think it's um, something that is something you're passionate about for whatever reason, you think the technology is great, you think the end use is great, you think the application is great, you think the art is great, for example. But the reality is you're, you're effectively seeing this enormous degree of transactions, this enormous degree of trading in something that is extremely, extremely, extremely early. Uh, beta, alpha, maybe pre-alpha in some cases uh, in the Silicon Valley jargon uh, for the degree of maturity of the technology. And this is the challenge and the opportunity. And, and this is where we find ourselves having these conversations uh, about technologies uh, that effectively would never be publicly traded companies uh, because it's just too early. But again, that's the promise, that's the opportunity, but it's also the risk and it's also the downside, Robin. Well, you know, you and I, as, as youthful as we appear on camera, probably old enough to remember, you know, the dot-com boom, yeah. 98, 99, 3000, where you had pets.com, you had, yeah. in the UK, we had lastminute.com. These, ins I mean, I, I went back and looked at some of the valuations, my mind completely blown. Like it's these multi-billion dollar valuations for these companies, it just, it just felt so familiar to, to, to the experience I'm going through now where we, we, we really feel this is life-changing tech, but probably as you rightly say, like 20 years from now, it'll all be so obvious. But right now in the noise of it, in the mess of it, I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, it's fascinating. And it's fascinating seeing a project like Yuga Labs and other side dominating the conversation, knowing full well there's every chance that this becomes the footnote, the caveat to what actually happens later on. But it just feels so kind of dominating and overwhelming right now. But as we know, it, yeah. it can completely evaporate. You know, Netscape, and Mark Andreessen, they went through all of that, and and then antitrust with Internet Explorer. The, the you know these are legendary stories of a period where the internet was being built.
And this is exactly where we are right now. We are the chroniclers of that, Ash. We are the ones that are going to look back historically and say, Ash Bennington, he knew. He knew. I don't know what he knew, but he knew something. (laughs) I don't know about that, but there's the old joke that like journalism is a first draft of history. And sometimes it's an incredibly rough first draft. But to follow up on uh, your metaphor with 1999, uh, the dot-com boom, the dot-com bust, I think that's spot on. Uh, As the old saying goes, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Uh, In those days, late 90s, early 2000s, I was working at Credit Suisse uh, down in midtown Manhattan at Credit Suisse Private Banking. I remember the moment uh, that NASDAQ collapsed. I believe it was in April uh, of 2000. It was precipitated by um, a judge ruling that Microsoft was going to get broken up. Ultimately, Microsoft didn't get broken up because of some prejudicial comments the judge had made uh, out of court. The the decision ultimately got reversed on appeal. Uh, But Microsoft was about to get broken up, and that's what precipitated that crash. Now, here's the interesting thing to precisely your point, Robin. um, The world has obviously changed uh, in the last 22 years and the Internet has powered those changes. So ultimately, ultimately, the revolution, in fact, did play out. People who were early, people who were innovative, people who were uh, who were who had the foresight to see the technology, the direction it was going. Um, People like um, uh, Bill Gates and uh, and uh, Larry Ellison um, over at Oracle made enormous, enormous fortunes. But here's the thing. Here's the flip side of that coin. Uh, Two points. Number one, um, very often those stocks were underwater for long periods of time. Amazon, you lo- if you bought Amazon at the peak in whatever it was, late 99, early 2000, you were underwater for years. Cisco Systems is another example uh, of a stock that was underwater for many years. Um, it takes time and you can lose money. And you can lose money uh, not just on paper, but you can lose money in reality if you come into that in a realized way, if you come into that and you, you get spooked and you sell out. The other important point is survivorship bias. When we look back and we say, yes, well, but you know, look at what Amazon did uh, over the last 20 years. Look at what Microsoft did over the last 20 years. Look at Oracle. The reality is there were companies that didn't survive. So you're cherry picking the data at the end to only look at the winners. Uh, survivorship bias is always one of the, the sort of uh, canonical traps that investors can fall into. So where do we land, right? That's the challenge. We know the forces uh, um, that are that are driving innovation, that are creating uh, these new technologies that are able to drive enormous efficiency, that is able to create growth, uh, that's able to increase GDP. And on the other, we know that there is survivorship bias. We know that there are bombs out there. We know that there are landmines that haven't yet been overturned. Uh, and we know uh, additionally that there's this issue of, of cherry picking data and survivorship bias. And now, and now, add to all that all the additional uncertainty we have uh, in these decentralized ecosystems, these these massive hacks that can drain a treasury uh, in a matter of minutes. Um, Misrepresentations that we talked about uh, again with Yuga Labs where Web2 platforms like Instagram get hacked uh, and misdirect people uh, who lose hundreds of thousands of dollars in a matter of seconds. These are these forces that are that are colliding. We can see the future. We can see, I think at least, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe we're all wrong, but there really seems to be a huge amount of potential value to unlock in these decentralized ecosystems. And yet, at the same time, we have all the old problems that we just talked about in the dot-com bubble era. And simultaneously, we have entirely new categories of problems. How does this sort itself out? How do these things balance in the end? Who are the winners? Who are the losers? That's what these conversations are all about, trying to figure that out. 
Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the tendency to kind of say, ah, oh, if only I'd seen Bored Apes. Well, the thing is, if you'd seen Bored Apes when they were selling for 0.08 ETH, you probably would have passed because you wouldn't know. And how could you possibly know? The... <clears throat> The best strategy is the one that the VCs I, I've spoken to use is they they spread, they spread, they hedge, they 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 have a bunch of turkeys, but the ones that hit, they hit so big, the turkeys don't matter. And that is a very privileged position to be in. I was talking right. to another VC friend of mine that said, <clears throat> you know, the, the big ones, yeah, they do great. But actually the, the, the medium level ones, the ones that haven't gone so big are still doing great for them. Like... Strong VCs that know what they're doing are, are making a killing right now and will probably continue to make a killing as this continues to grow because there is, I feel, still a lot of narrative to play out before we really understand what's going on here. I don't know how yeah. you feel. No, I, I think that's exactly right. And it, it's also interesting to me, you know, if you if you look at the, the history uh, of Wall Street, of the securities industry in, in the modern sense, you could say it runs about 75 years from the Securities Act of 1933 until 2008. You know, obviously, the system is still in place, but it's, it's, it's experiencing, obviously, some flux as we talk about with all these macroeconomic challenges. So that system lasted uh, for about uh, 75 years. The modern venture capitalist uh, paradigm, uh, the Kleiner Perkins of the world, the people who were really early to this, uh, those shops were founded in the 1970s, but they really didn't, to use another uh, term that's common uh, on Sand Hill Road, they really didn't eat the world uh, until the late 90s, early 2000s. So that system has been on, in place now, the, the Sand Hill model uh, that we were talking about with multiple rounds and how venture capital works. That's been in place only now for about 25 years, a relatively new system. And now when I talk to uh, these young guys and gals uh, in their 20s who are doing uh, work in the VC space in the tokenized world, they refer derisively, dismissively to the Sand Hill Road model. That's, those are the old guys and gals, right? That's not the future. That's the past. And so it's really interesting to see um, how these sort of venture capital private equity models are being just absolutely disrupted uh, by the decentralized world, by the tokenomics that we're talking about now. And, you know, obviously people who are smart about technology uh, and who understand uh, the risks and opportunities and are able to invest and invest early are going to make a ton of money. Um, but the flip side, precisely as you pointed out, uh, are the risks for those who are early uh, and maybe don't know or don't understand, haven't seen these cycles, haven't had the opportunities to understand what's happened in the past and how that history applies to the present and indeed to the future. Uh, and the reality is they can and will lose money. Yes, well, Gary Gensler agrees with you and he means business and he has just announced the, the newly formed crypto assets and cyber unit and they're increasing the positions there from 30 to 50. They're yeah. doubling up and, and focusing basically on enforcing securities law in pretty much all aspects of crypto, lending, NFTs, custody, pretty much anything you that, that he can sink his teeth into, he's going to. I mean, 50 seems like it's still underpowered for the scope here, but I mean, it's pretty clear 
what they want to do here. Is it not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this uh, release uh, crossed the wire just yesterday, uh, and it's it's obviously it's a big story. Uh, growing this uh, enforcement division uh, to fifty dedicated positions. These are people who are going to be working full time to do this. Look, I, I think the challenge here isn't so much on the enforcement side. I think there there uh, there is um, there is you know people will will tell you we've talked about them there are challenges out there we know that there are scams right we know that there are um, there are fraudulent uh, securities or de facto securities that are being offered uh, in the space uh, there are bad actors in crypto surprise surprise right but the challenge here uh, is that effectively what SEC here is doing is uh, they're stepping up enforcement. These are folks who've stepped over the line. SEC reaches out uh, and uh, and confronts them. Right. SEC doesn't uh, criminally prosecute. This is on the civil side, but they can refer to Department of Justice if they believe that there have been violation of criminal laws. So when someone steps across the line, SEC uh, is there with an enforcement action. The challenge is uh Folks in the space who are good actors, who are actually going out there trying to build things, trying to add value, uh, trying to uh, figure out where the puck is going uh, and to build the systems uh, that are going to execute, implement and uh, and be the the you know, the new standard bearers of that space. They don't have any guidance right now uh, about where those lines are. So, you know, the challenge is that you have you have uh, enforcement actions when people step across the line, but very little guidance about where those lines are. This is a theme that I hear constantly uh, from people who are building in the space. They're like, regulate us, find, give us some uh, way of knowing where those lines are, of knowing how we can act in a way that's compliant with the guidance uh, so that we don't wind up crossing that line. And and that's and that's a challenge. And it takes time to build up those precedents. It takes time to build up case law. It takes time to build up rules uh, and regulations for how that takes place. And so uh, this is this is the challenge that 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 good actors in the crypto space uh, find themselves in uh, now trying to understand where those lines are, where uh, those barriers are and trying to build accordingly, Robin. Well, absolutely. Well, here's hoping that we look back in 20 years time and, and see that we were indeed the rough draft of history and we know where our lines are. So thanks, Ash, for joining me on this weekly. This is a great conversation uh, and I will see you all next week for more of the same. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to Real Vision Crypto. For more great crypto content like this, head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.